Hello, every loving one of you. Welcome to Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez, a podcast celebrating the cultural omnivores in all of us. In today's episode, I chat with writer Mandy Suzanne Wong. I invited uh, Mandy Suzanne to the podcast because we uh, just finished doing a second edition of Awabi, which is the chapbook that won the award. And I I just wanted to chat with her about the stories and the book and, and the making of it. Here is me talking to Mandy Suzanne Wong. I was reading your book again today. I mean, I've read it so many times, obviously. Um, but every time I read Awabi, something different jumps out to me, which is why I love it so much. Because I love stories that do that, that you can dive in. And there's always something that you miss that first time you read it, the second, third, fourth time you read it, and you, you catch it again. And it, you know, obviously that's also the reader putting something in there because they're going through something at that moment, right? And, and they're bringing it to, that, to the page which is what makes literature so amazing that that happens. Writer's dream. That's part of the writer's dream. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And um, there are a few things that jumped out to me when when I read it this time. So, you know, I'll bring those up in our conversation. But I know we wanted to read some of it first. So do you want to start with the reading and then we'll talk a little bit? Sure. That sounds good. Ayuka breathes. Surfacing, she rested only a few seconds. Hiroki would slap the water with a ping pong paddle if, in this frail interim, he wanted her before she went deep again. Shouting wouldn't do, Ayuko wouldn't hear. Oceanic pressures had exacted an early toll. When waterlogged, her ears were particularly weak. Hiroki knew his wife wasn't deliberately hard to reach, but it did hurt having more and more to scream at her as though she lived fathoms away, and he didn't enjoy slapping things like some sort of seal. Ayuka claimed she could feel him in the ocean's recoil. A net fisherman by vocation, Hiroki Watanabe had no qualms about pounding the pier with his foot when the ama's doddering procession seemed to tally. The women donned masks and wetsuits in a hut beside the beach, and there Ayuka left them, making her way alone to her husband's boat. As Hiroki aimed their prow at open sea, Ayuka watched her mother, sister, and friends swim out from the beach She saw eight pairs of flippers kiss the sky, plunging 15 meters to the reefs and seaweed forests. Hiroki turned off the boat in an undulating field of blue and gray without horizon. He gave Ayuka a rope attached to a windlass. Ayuka tied the rope around her waist and jumped into a cold blue otherworld. Sinuous forests and grasses swayed in absent breeze and moody gray-blue light. With a wooden spatula of prehistoric design, Ayuka turned over rocks, delved into crevices, rooted through seaweeds in search of edible mollusks and echinoderms. She tugged the rope around her waist when she had to breathe, and Hiroki reeled her in with the windlass. The other ama stayed in sight of shore, but Ayuka only had eyes for the ocean's very heart. She was a funado ama, fune meaning boat, the last of her kind in dwindling Kayomi. It seemed the deep belonged to her alone. Hiroki was her harbor. The Ama swam as deep as endurance permitted without breathing apparatus. They were predators. They were also caretakers of a 10,000-year-old custom, sheltering their prey against themselves. The prey, mostly mollusks, starved or withered nonetheless in poisoned seas. The fishing co-op tried to save them, trimmed the Ama's workday to an hour, truncated the fishing season, hid farmed prawns and mollusk babies in the wild. Ayuka and Hiroki kindled their love with dreams of nursing the ocean back to health. Hiroki would lead the co-op. He and Ayuka would change everything. They failed, of course. The ama, the fishermen, the village joined their prey on an expressway to extinction and discouraged their children from following. The Watanabe's two sons followed their friends to the city. And then in their empty house, Ayuka and Hiroki no longer knew what they were. Ranged against them were the forces of a planet self-destructing. The Watanabes couldn't hate the planet, so they blamed their disappointment on each other. Their hasty criticisms decayed into stubborn misunderstandings when Ayuka misheard and couldn't bring herself to ask him to reiterate, or when Hiroki 
knowing he would have to reiterate or bore to say anything. A devotee of quiet who believed fishes spoke in gestures, Ayuka asked Hiroki to point to things that would indicate his meaning. Hiroki refused because it made him feel foolish. Let's start with the Yama, since they are the central figures in both of the stories. Who are the Yama? The Yama are a community of about, as of 2017, 600, 700 women on the southwestern coast of Japan, mostly, who free dive for a living in order to catch uh, mostly abalone, but also other kinds of snails, octopuses, and seaweeds as well. The thing about them is that for as long as their tradition has lasted, which is about 10,000 years, the Ama have never used any type of breathing technology. So no scuba, no snorkel, no snuba, and uh, they have refused to do that for many thousands of years. And as a result, they catch a lot less than if they had scuba tanks. They can stay, they can stay underwater on average, you know, about 50 seconds now. And um, that's a little bit shorter than you would have found, say, 30, 40 years ago, because the number of ama that exist are dwindling, and those who are left are mostly much older. Um, the average age in the 90s or so was about 60. Restrictions that are traditional that the community has imposed on themselves, that they will only dive for a certain amount of time every day. And all this, you know, the lack of breathing equipment, the, the truncating the workday down to just an hour or a couple of hours, all this is in the interests of conserving the prey that they are also trying to catch. They never want to take any more. They don't want to overfish the sea in, in that respect, you know, for, many, many generations, they've been more forward-looking than any other kind of fisherman or hunter that has used technology in order to capture more and more and more. They have only their traditional, very old-fashioned diving masks, which do not magnify. So they just have a plain lens, just one plain lens and no fancy reflective coating or anti-glare coatings or any of that. Like. And so impose that disadvantage on themselves as well, because they don't want to catch abalone or shellfish who are too small. They want to give them a chance to grow up and produce several generations themselves before, before catching them and eating them. Nowadays, like I was saying, in, in the area that I'm writing about, which is uh, Iseshima in Japan, there are about 650, 700 ama still remaining. Yeah, that's where they are today. And so as a result of not being able to, of purposely not being able to catch uh, enough abalone to just make a living from that, they're also turning to uh, tourism. Guest houses are very common, you know, for Alma to run and then you can, you can go there and visit and learn all about um, what they do, you know, and their traditional values, which in the book I call them both predators and caretakers because they have to eat, but they're also, of equal priority is conservation, you know, taking care of the ocean. And what's replacing them? Like what, who's fishing for these abalone and? Yeah, nobody. Um, the thing is that the abalone are dwindling anyway because mm. of other problems like uh, global warming, pollution, acidification, all causing problems in the ocean that are um, not, uh, allowing the awabi, the abalone, to grow up. Shellfishes are bioindicators of ocean acidification. That means that uh, scientists were able to tell that the ocean was becoming acidic when they looked at certain snails, certain shellfishes, and saw that holes were being bored into their shells by the water wow. that, they living, that they're living in. And yes, the ones they were looking at were extremely delicate snails and as compared to abalone, but they still face that challenge. They still have to work extra in order to maintain their bodies and maintain their, their, um, their homes and protection. And it's, it takes extra energy to grow, extra energy to breathe. So they're not growing as quickly. There are diseases um, everywhere that are, that are taking its toll on all their populations. In the US, there's a kind of abalone that's pretty much already extinct because of disease. And um, 
all these problems are exacerbated by pollution. Japan is notorious for, they dump a lot of stuff in the water and, and we Western countries are no better. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the AMA uh, lately in, in 2020 for the Olympics, one of the AMA was, uh, was a Olympic torchbearer through the East Asia region. And so she did a little interview and um, when asked what the major challenge of her work was, she said that the seaweed that are the abalone's favorite food, which in Japanese is called arame seaweed, has just disappeared. They're not entirely sure why, but wow. probably some combination of the water's too hot, it's too dirty, it's too acidic. You know, so if the abalone have no food, they can't grow there. And, you know, it's just all, everything's bound together. Alabi is is two short stories and it's very earthly bound by, because we're, we're seeing this world through the eyes of these women that are telling the story. But then you included this new forward that it's from the point of view of, an, of a wabi, which is abalone. There's one line that jumped out to me, and that's the very last line of, of that. Her self-restraint is pure devotion. We sort of are in the life of this awabi, and, and, and there's a foot on a stone. And no matter what, Yawabi's not going to let go of that stone, which married so well with the two stories, because those stories are also about perseverance in the face of calamity, expected calamity to the ocean, but also the journey of every living thing, I think, is life, survival, metamorphosis, birth, in other words, breeding so that we can replenish, and death, which is inevitable. And that cycle is, is in the whole book. And it's treated, you know, with great care. But the, the one part of that cycle that is the most difficult is the metamorphosis part, I think. Yeah. Because what is that going to be? What is the change going to be? And is that change going to be a positive change? Is that going to help? Or is that going to accelerate the destruction? Exactly. Exactly. I love that you're pointing this out because I actually hadn't thought of like metamorphosis as a as a theme, but it it really is. And you know, for for a snail like the like the awabi, it's a matter of you know being a planktonic larva that floats around and can swim to literally turning into a snail that has a shell that only has one foot that can't swim at all. You know, that's tied to the bottom of the ocean, and and you know that's that's a big deal that a kind of metamorphosis is that I don't think humans can even imagine. And it definitely involves some consciousness because the Awabi has to choose where she's going to land, where she's going to sit down and begin that metamorphosis. Being only, you know, a couple of weeks old, you know, somehow there's some, there's some amazing connection between the minds of these tiny babies and their ancestors of how many years ago, parents that they've never met so that they know how to choose a good place to bed down. Mm. And um, with the ama, it's like, it's very different. In, in Sumiko's daughters, you have the ama's traditions being passed down from mother to daughter to daughter to daughter. And that, that transmission is conscious done very deliberately and manipulatively even, you know, like what to say and what not to say, encourage or discourage. Like you're saying, like the type of metamorphosis that a daughter decides to undergo changes depending on, well, the Awabi, you know, how many of them there are, can they sustain a career? And um, in Ayuka Bruce, there's, uh, the metamorphosis is within the Ama's conception of herself as, Am I just a human? Or since I breathe the way a marine mammal breathes, am I more of a marine mammal? And you know what that does to the relationships in her life. So yeah, metamorphosis is a theme. Thank you for pointing it out. <laughs> but it's also the ama in, in taking the role of God in terms of the 
sea and, and the living things in the sea because they're the ones that decide which which shellfish to, to take out of nature, right? Which shellfish to yeah. basically kill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's a very classic conflict of man versus nature of this, you know, what are we the keepers of nature? Are we there to protect it, to conserve it? Or are we simply the destructors of it? And we're delusional in thinking that we're saving it or delu- I mean, or maybe we will never save it because just simply our existence is. The ama, if they are like God, then they are like a very benevolent God because at least they are, you know, God is killing, but they are also considering what, they know what they're doing. They realize that they're affecting an ecosystem. They realize that they're, they're interacting directly with the individuals that they have to kill. So they have to be okay with that. With, with commercial fishing, basically all other kinds of fishing, the law is that you can take what they call the maximum sustainable yield. You can catch as much as you can until the ocean starts to collapse. Right? You can, with, that, with, with that kind of international legislation, you know, there's no consideration for, for, for the ocean itself. And like, how do we even know how to measure when the ocean's in trouble? We don't. Mm. So maximum sustainable yield is basically catch as much as you can, catch as much as you want, take everything. So now we have uh, extinctions. The bluefin tuna is almost gone. So the attitude is completely different from the ama's attitude of self-restraint and personal interaction, uh, like the killing is personal thing, a one-on-one uh, hunter-prey relationship, very different from like trawl fishing, which dredges the ocean, very different from sonar fishing, which uses a computer to find the fish, or even net fishing that just gathers them all up and you never even see what it is you're, you're gathering. And, and who cares if you pick up something that you didn't even want to catch kill them anyway, and they're just waste, bycatch. The the priorities are just so different. Also, capitalism comes into play because all these things that become scarce also become very valuable. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, the the demand for them is still there. People are willing to pay more and more money for these scarcely available creatures. Yeah, and at that kind of I mean, there's a responsibility there as well. Like, how much do you really need to eat bluefin tuna sashimi right now? You know, there's nothing else in the whole world that you could eat that would be good and fun. That's hard to wrap my head around, you know? Like, I, I don't know. Like, maybe for someone in a bigger country like Japan or the United States, where you can get pretty much anything that you want. It's like, okay, I want it. That's the point. I'm going to get it. But I mean, for me, coming from a very small island, very small country, you have to get used to the fact that there are a lot of things you just can't have. You know, like nobody's shipping refrigerated tuna to Bermuda. You know, uh-huh. it's just just something you couldn't, just something you can't have. And abalone, I've never even seen one. Like nobody's shipping abalone meat to Bermuda, and our, the climate is too hot, sadly, for them to uh, live uh-huh. here naturally. Yeah. So you're from, you were born in an island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you lived most of your life. I mean, you're probably yeah. coming on to the mainland, <laughs> right, for education. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you definitely have this connection um, that's very different from like my connection to the ocean, where, you know, where I live. I've lived in New York all my life. I now live in New Jersey, but basically New York adjacent. <laughs> life doesn't really change from one state to the other here. And our relationship with the ocean is not one of, it's one of entertainment almost. It's where you go to hang out and, you know, sip your margaritas and yeah. get a suntan, you know, then that's it. That it's not this intimate relationship where the ocean literally separates you mm-hmm. from everything else. Yeah. So, talk to me about like growing up in an island and how that kind of informs your writing. I mean, growing up here was just so wonderful. And, you know, I would spend, um, my parents were also Islanders, obviously, and and we would spend every moment that we could, every afternoon, every weekend, in the water, on the water, 
we Bermuda is very lucky in that, um, unlike Hawaii, where they get super strong waves, we have some of the weak, weakest waves in the world um, just because of the waves, waves sort of start forming around where near Bermuda is and end up on the coast of the US, by which time they've grown. Mm. So we have the baby, baby waves that are then growing. And we're also surrounded by a beautiful ring of coral reefs. And the island itself is a part of a lip of a crater of a volcano, which is part mm. of the Atlantic Ridge. Supposedly the volcano is extinct. My, my brother and I, our, our greatest joy was just like being on the beach just offshore, discovering what we could in the sand, climbing on the rocks, you know, finding, finding little animals who, you know, tiny little crabs, tiny limpets, you know, that was the greatest joy. I didn't realize how much I really wanted to write about it until I'd been away in the U.S. for so many years, almost, almost two decades in the U.S. Wow. So. Yeah, I know, it ruined everything. I lost my accent, can't spell anymore. <laughs> I, I realized when, after I'd lived in Boston for a while, I realized just how hemmed in I felt because I couldn't see the ocean. There are Bermudians who feel hemmed in by the ocean. Like they're, 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 there's no one else for miles around, but I started to feel claustrophobic because I couldn't see it. And I think that was my first step in starting to want to come back. And, um, I, I lived, I then moved to LA, probably in part because I could see it. And, um, but it was very different. You know, I, I visited Muscle Beach. <laughs> People <laughs> would go there, you know, the, the purpose of the beach is to show off themselves and their, their, their push-up skills. And, you know, they would outfit at the beach for easier push-ups and jogging in place. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was just so funny. And but there, I never touched the water because it was brown. It was so dirty. I couldn't believe how people were just were swimming in it. Bermuda is also very lucky in that we are still relatively one of the cleanest uh, marine ecosystems in the world. But we're ruining that too. So you know, we are overpopulated. We don't have an environmentally conscious or friendly government, we, we have the chance, we're the only landmass in the Sargasso Sea, which is an internal sea in the Atlantic Ocean, a very unique ecosystem. And um, we've been given the opportunity so many times to like make the Sargasso Sea a hope spot, a marine protected area, no fishing. But our government has shot it down every time. Uh, and so, yeah, the outlook is is not great. Our biodiversity is dropping, and um, it's 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 not great. When when I got back, I realized that I had never learned myself to free dive or scuba dive, like because of some medical problems that I have. And I wanted to imagine that. I wanted to have characters who did that, who did what I can't do. You know, so of course a lot of research, but. It's great to imagine myself into that, into that feeling of being down there for that long. You know, I can take little dives for whatever, two seconds or whatever, you know, but to imagine what it's like to just be able to stay down there and touch the ground and touch the seaweed and look into the eyes of whoever comes up to you. And, that, that I had to I had to fictionalize that somehow. You've got an incredible way of creating the sensory world through words. Yeah. Right. And I know that have you been to Japan? Have you no, I have not. I had planned very much to go to Japan. Like um after Awabi was published, I decided to do some more work about the Ama and wanted to go um, to Japan, especially now that um, there are a couple of young ama who can sort of speak English and have started their own guest houses and are, mm. are able to communicate with, um, with non-Japanese speaking tourists. You know, until very recently, it was only Japanese speaking tourists who would visit them, like so internal tourism. And then the pandemic, right? So that just canceled any, any 
hope I had of going there in the near future. And then, you know, the pandemic has repercussions. So in the distant future, it doesn't look too possible either. Um, so, but I decided to do it anyway and um, make the new story about the AMA, but also even more um, about their relationships, not just with their husbands and their mothers and daughters as, as in the lobby, but with more about the uh, relationships between the AMA and their prey or, and the other non-humans around them. Mm -hmm. you know, so to get to imagine even more of that neighborhood. I'm letting it go a little bit into the fantastic as well, because may as well, since we can't, since I can't have total accuracy, I may as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think also the world right now, and, and I'm talking about like the social stuff going on politically and culturally. And I don't know, I feel this sort of need to go towards the fantastical and the speculative. Like I, I really am not digging hyper-realism right now <laughs> because it feels inadequate. You know, the, the, Reality is so insane right now. I mean, the things that people are saying on television is just enough to like, what is, what? <laughs> what is happening to everyone? I don't understand most people these days. Like, I don't understand where they're coming from, why they believe what they believe in, why they're following what they're following. Yeah. And it feels to me like the speculative delves into a place that we all know is in us that we try to sort of crush it somehow with the corporal or, or what's what's visibly yeah. visible to us. Right. Um, trendy, you know, or, you know, it's hyper-realism is, is trendy. Like I've, I've noticed that um, looking at reviews and so forth, you know, reviewers would say, I could really see myself in this book. And like, Why do you want to see yourself in the book? If you want to see yourself, go look in the mirror. You know, you see yourself anywhere, any, every day. You want to read a book, you want to read about something that's not, or I want to read about something that's not myself, you know, about difference, like to experience difference. And that's a big part of where our, all, both of our Western cultures are, are going completely wrong, wanting to be monocultures, not wanting anything to do with what they are told is different. Well, right? The excitement of something being revealed that you didn't maybe knew, but or maybe you didn't know that excitement. I, I mean, I still fi find excitement when I see something or read something that it's told to me in a way that I never thought could be told to me. You know, just a, a different experience, and yet still something I can sympathize with because perhaps that that inkling was in me, and I just didn't know how to express it. But this person somehow has expressed it. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, right. Yeah. But that 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 type of art, I don't know. It's it's somehow it's not as important right now for most people. And it's it's makes me a little sad because I'm not sure what that means for the rest of us. I know, yeah. And it it, it is sad. I think that um art is being forced or you know, socially pressured or outright forced to be propaganda in one form or another. You have to have a political agenda you ha and it has to be the right political agenda. And you have to comment on what's going on. You have to have it so that your readers can see their own lives reflected in what it, you know. So that's that's not, not how, not, not what I got into it for anyway. You know, and it's, it's, it is very sad that art is not being allowed to just be art. The idea of art for art's sake is so taboo. Uh -huh. And yet um, there are some very good writers who say, you know, that's actually the most courageous kind of art you can make is art that is only itself and refuses to be propaganda for anything, for anybody, refuses to have an agenda and to let itself be used, you know. But, you know, on the other hand, art does have the ability to like bring out those impulses in people that you were saying, bring out different ideas and different impulses in people that they didn't realize that they had, if it engages with difference and is not, is not just another mirror. Yeah, well, we have to, I think as 
the type of writers I think we both are. I yeah. think um, we're facing a lot of preconceptions, um, a lot of pushback because maybe some of it is interpreted as a navel gazing or not really doing anything for the person. You know, you're facing all these prejudices. For me, I feel like that makes my life a little more exciting <laughs> because the challenge to get through is there. Right. Right. And so you just keep working on this thing. And um, I think eventually you find an audience. Yeah. And yeah. then you just keep doing it. There's no guarantees you're going to be a best selling author or accepted by the mainstream or all that stuff. But the fact that you're able to get stuff out there and it exists in some form, I think, is already you're meeting your challenge. But I think that's that's been the plight of artists yeah forever <laughs> it's always been that and it always will be you know. we're not gonna no one's gonna get us <laughs> sometimes okay. and that's okay they don't have to get us <laughs> yeah exactly uh, like I, what i find ironic is that um the very the very trends that accuse experimental and speculative writing of navel gazing are navel gazing they <laughs> because if you want to see yourself in everything you read what is that that's navel gazing <laughs> So there's something there's something a bit off there, I think, too, you know, yeah. but um, I, I and I think that uh, you and I as, as writers are <laughs> fortunate is not quite the word, but we have multicultural perspectives, you know, mm. we are we have felt what colonialism can do. We have we have tried breaking out of it. We know what it is to never fit in and all of that all of that gets into our writing that forces it to be different. And it took me a long time to realize that I just have to embrace that. Mm -hmm. Embrace my pluralism and embrace the pluralism that I want to see in the world. Yeah, and again, that's, you know, very few people have those experiences. People with our background do, you know, and um, that's why it's so important to keep <laughs> doing what we do, right? Exactly. Yeah. But, I, but it's also, it's, I mean, I find that my multiculturalism and uh, my multiracial background and, you know, I find that it's prepared me for some of the difficulties right now. And yes, I do feel privileged because I feel like I do have this sort of insight into some things that I don't think is shared by someone who grew up in a monoculture, you could call it, you know, like um, so it's an advantage in many ways, um, which is why, you know, yeah. we call the journal a journal for cultural omnivores because it's really, it's about encouraging that open-mindedness and take everything in and forget the prejudices, forget the, you know, what you think this thing is. Because whatever you think it is, it's probably not what you think <laughs> it is. And that's cool about it. You, know? right. Right. you should embrace, you shouldn't try to put things in a box. Right, exactly. Yeah. And but it, it and the social pressure though to like fit in somewhere, to find a niche somewhere is just is is incredible. And yeah. you know, kudos to us for sticking it out. <laughs> you know, because... well, and also you have the, the cliches to fight fire with fire. And when I see like all this marketeering going on um through social media because a lot of people are just marketing stuff now i mean marketing themselves marketing their lifestyle marketing everything's a brand and, <laughs> and it's just like well i could not be part of the social media and just drop out and do my own thing and forget about everybody else but i actually think it's important to be in it throw it back at them want your differences at them even more show that a, a brand is not one thing Right. Yeah. That it's many different things and it's pluralistic. It's not about putting yourself in one def defined space. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. And it's and I, what I've noticed is that most people are they're sort of open to it, but they're also very scared of it. Yeah. Definitely. You know, a lot of it is you just they just have this fear about it because they just don't know what to expect. Yeah. They yeah. can't figure it out right away yeah the thing about there's a thing of like if accepting a kind of weird or experimental work will make um say a lip mag feel that they are uh, losing hold on their niche whatever that niche is that's a threat 
to them, you know, like the, the most, the most common rejection I get by far is, this is great, but it doesn't fit in. Mm -hmm. Since when does literature have to fit in? But it, it does, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Going back to social media for a second, like the, the <laughs> AMA these days are doing the most adorable things on social media to bring guests to their guest house. Like for the first time with, especially with Instagram, they can like, they can market themselves internationally without having to have like the city that the, the, the city that their village is an umbrella under do it for them or the tourism board or whatever, you know, they can, they can reach out to um, potential guests in their own language, in other languages. And um, it's, it's great. This, this stuff you can see, um, the insides of Amagoyas when, when the Amas cho choose to post them, that's the huts where they go in and change their clothes and store all their gear. The people who, who they feature are mostly little old ladies, you know, who are the most adorable, you know, and, they, and they're cooking, they're, they, they're just, there's this one lady in particular named Reiko, and she is way over 80. She is still doing the whole Ama thing, including the tourist greeting and, and the quote unquote traditional dances that they've made up that they can, that, that the tourists can enjoy eating in and cooking, <laughs> explaining, you know, and it's just, you can see like that they're doing this just out of pure joy. It is, it, it has changed a lot of, social media has opened up like what, what's out there for me to look at from a distance. And it's gotten rid of that intermediary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, of Which the anthropologist or the, you know, whoever. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, there are, they have felt to some extent to buy into the social media trends. Like um, mm. I saw them on TikTok or, or they posted a TikTok video on Instagram, like doing this odd dance. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I felt really old, not even knowing what the dance was. <laughs> and then um, there are other ama uh, in Korea. Ama are called hinyo, and there's a few of them in Korea. They have latched on to the uh, new version of Disney's Little Mermaid that's coming out. So they are now identifying as mermaids. The preview for that movie, when in its that they're going to release in Korea, has a hinyo in the preview, like. And then she finds the shell that the little mermaid had that had her voice in. The, the idea of mermaid has really taken off in both, in both Korean divers and now in Japanese divers too, which is cool because on the one hand, they're starting to admit that they're, they don't have to just be human. It's also just latching onto a Western idea of a mermaid that's not even part of their own culture and like just latching onto it because it's popular and if it helps them to stay alive and to, to survive, okay. Yeah. yeah, it's the compromise. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to read the next story? Sure, okay. Sumiko's Daughters. On almost every day of her long life, Sumiko Iseya, nay Nagata, jumped into the Pacific Ocean and dove through shadows blue on blue to frigid depths of perhaps 15 meters. She was an ama, an ocean woman, who learned to dive from her foremothers and learned to breathe from whales. She swam down to the seafloor with neither scuba tank nor snorkel, down to the very bottoms of the reefs and the heart of the kelp forest, and there she stayed for as long as a whole minute, kicking her way up at last, dragging a load of slippery and shatterable things, breaking the surface with a gasp like a cry of pain, exhaled in a long whistle, which some called isomegeki or the sea's lament. She deposited her confused and cringing cargo in the floating wooden barrel tied to her waist and dove again. In one hour, Sumiko made 50 dives. She searched for snails, sazaye with silver shells like inverted whirlpools, and their mother of pearl abalone sisters, Owami, with such expressive eyes. She also hunted their cousins, octopuses, urchins, spiny lobsters, sea stars, seaweeds, and sea cucumbers, the chubby and slimy Namaku. But Owabi were above all. Noshi Owabi was the sacred sustenance of the divine Kami Amaterasu, ancestress of all Japan, and luxury markets paid 8,000 yen per pound for Owabi sashimi. 
Even men followed Awabi into the water when prawns were scarce or finned fishes weren't biting, but men preferred fishing from boats atop the sunlit surface. Grubbing in the sand between light and dark, air and water, life and death, turning over rocks and plunging hands into black crevices, the secret layers of biting eels and stinging puffer fish, battling the cold, the currents, struggling mollusks, and the fighting urge to breathe, that was women's work. Sumiko learned from her grandmother, who'd learned from her own grandmother, that throughout the Edo period, no community incurred greater disdain than the Ami. They were hinin, strangers who dirtied themselves with death's dirty work. But from her mother and grandmother, Sumiko inherited the belief that all Ama shared. It wasn't that women and snail seeking were ignoble. Women in the ocean, we are a natural match. Only women can bear it when the ocean's touch goes deep. Only women have enough of the right kind of body fat to withstand the biting cold. Women needn't fear the ocean's chilling love and Ama mustn't be afraid. That's why Ama are women. Sumiko was optimistic, curious, and proud with an indefatigableness she inherited from her mother. The ocean was Sumiko's mother too. The ocean, her daughter. Owabi were Sumiko's daughters and her mothers. Ama followed the Owabi as they followed their human mothers into the ocean, devoured the sea snails as they fed on their mother's milk. Predator, daughter, mother of the deep, where all was slippery, shadowy, roving, waving, Sumiko understood the flowing blending of visible and invisible life. And so she wasn't afraid of sharks, demons, typhoons, or freak currents. She didn't worry about running out of air. She lived half a century before she tasted fear for the first time. And that time, for the first time, her ocean mother could not save her. I'm glad you read that section. So the ocean is the beginning of life on Earth. Mm -hmm. And there's this connection of mothers, females, the ocean, the men don't want to do the diving because <laughs> it's not manly enough. They want to be able to like hunt and kill. <laughs> and the, the women are, you know, diving, becoming part of the world where they're, even though they're the predators, they are sort of immersing themselves mm-hmm. yeah. and becoming a part of it because they're, you know, they're sort of taking on the lives of, of um, mammals that can mm-hmm. dive deep. Yeah, yeah, they're like sea otters. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just a fascinating, you know, again, it's the sort of the cycles there in your book, and it's so beautifully rendered in a way that I've never experienced it before. Like, of course, I knew the ocean was the beginning of life, but you sort of take it for granted. I also come from part of a world where the hunter-gatherer is really the prevalent beginning for us, right? Like that's what we always kind of, I mean, our culture is still a hunter-gatherer culture in many ways. Right. right. I mean, it's sort of has evolved, but has it? I don't know. Maybe we're just the importer or importer. (laughs) But to to, um, learn about this tradition, a female-centric tradition, that is not a hunter-gatherer tradition, that, that men are not necessarily the rulers here. Yeah. It's fascinating. And um, I wondered about that, like how you, like, do you think that's what drew you into this? Besides your love of, you know, being a, someone who grew up in an island, there's this sort of yeah other preoccupation that I'm sensing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, when, I, when I, I, I started by looking at the Owabi, themselves, like looking for a species to write about that. I wanted to show how even the smallest animals are affected by what we're doing to the world, you know, are affected by the climate change that we are causing, you know. And so I started with them and then from them I found these women who are who are who are working with them. Um, and at that time when I started researching, the Ama were their predators and they had all their limitations, but they were also and I'm not sure if they still are, they may have had to give up, but like um, they were also taking baby Awabi who had been grown up in, um, who had grown in a farm and then putting them out into the wild right, so that the populations could attempt to recover. How well that works, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say because you know, a, a baby who's born in captivity uh, may or may not have the same instincts as baby who's born in the wild. But then again, you know, 
fishes and, and, and shellfishes are strange. Like they have these ancestral memories from ancestors they've never met. They um, never know their parents anyway. Possibly it, it could work, but, and as I researched more and more, I discovered this myth that used to persist among the Ama that they were the descendants of a matriarchal society that had once ruled that part of Japan. Oh. That's probably not true, but it was cool to think about. And as I read more and more, you know, it's, it got more and more complicated. Like, yes, the Ama and their husbands are in more of a partnership than perhaps any other type of married couple in Japan. In Japan, you know, it's very patriarchal. You know, men are rulers of the household. Women are not supposed to work. We're supposed to stay home produce the babies, produce pristine, beautiful lunches for the babies that are shaped like birds, sew their school clothes, sew the, you know, no buying of the suit of the school clothes. We have to sew them. And, you know, all these imprisoning little things that we're expected to do so that we cannot. The ama, there are there are no women in an ama village who are only housewives and mothers. You know, they have they have this other gig. And in addition to being divers, they're also having to run the inns, process the shellfishes for, for shipping, and run the household and have the babies and do all that other stuff. One, it's one of the things that um, has been drawing a couple of young younger women to the profession of ama because they feel that because the working hours are so truncated anyway, they can do what's expected of them, have the babies, et cetera, have a job that's theirs alone, that men are not a part of. I, I did a lot of research on husband and wife relationships between, between Ama and their boatmen, especially for Ayuga breeds. And um, in Ama villages, women are not seen as like bad luck to have on boats as they are in many other parts of the world. Husbands often, husbands who are fishermen often rely on their wives' sense of what's happening with the weather, like is it safe to go out today, but all that. So it is a lot more of a partnership, but at the co-ops where all the Amma have to bring their goods that the co-op, which is a government organization, then takes charge of selling. At the co-op, which involves fishermen and Amma, the fishermen always get priority. Like if for resources, for like the distribution of blame, like the ama are always blamed when the sea is starting to look overfished, but it's not the ama, they're only there an hour a day, you know? And the solution to overfishing is usually cut back the ama's hours. So uh -huh. women don't have to cut back their hours. And when there's voting or what passes for voting going on, the ama are always shouted down by the fishermen, you know? So there is still this patriarchy hanging over them. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, again, your writing is so inspired when it comes to portraying their lives that you feel like they're such powerful women, which yeah. they are, obviously. But of course, that the world can still work against you, even though you're a powerful person. So that's yeah. really cool to like, hear. It's sad, but it also, yeah, that's reality for women. Right. Right. And for small traditional um, populations, you know, like when it comes to um, since the since the government runs these co-ops, you know, when it comes to deciding resources that way, you know, they are at, at the bottom of the totem pole. The tiny villages out in the middle of nowhere are not priority since since Fukushima, like there's been a growing sort of divide in the in the consciousness of rural Japanese versus urban Japanese like Rural Japanese are the ones who are suffering. Mm. Urban Japanese are the ones who are using up all this electricity that created an overdemand that, that taxed the power plant that caused it to be, et cetera, et cetera. It's become conscious. I can talk to you for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you do have to cut it short. I just want to thank you so much for, for sitting with us and chatting. It's been fascinating. Thank you, too. Thank you so much. I, I, I started off being really nervous, but I'm totally fine now. Thank you. For <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, that's the goal always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
That was such a wonderful conversation to have. Um, I was just, I'm always so impressed with Mandy San Juan's intelligence and her thoughtfulness. She's she's really a fantastic writer, but also, wow, just learning about these stories and their inspiration and the intricacies of, of her fiction. It was just a wonderful, wonderful conversation. So once again, thank you, Mandy Suzanne Wong, for taking the time to talk with me. Please take a minute to like and subscribe to our podcast. And also, if you can, share it. Share it on social media. Share it with your friends. We are trying to reach as many people as possible. And I know we have a fantastic uh, fan base. It would be glorious if we can grow our audience a bit more. I do want to keep doing these conversations. I think they're super helpful if you are a writer, but also if you're a reader, if you're a lover of fiction, uh, poetry, you name it. If you are in New York on July 24th, we are hosting our second live event at Room 31. We launched a music and literary series called The Lit Review, that's R-E-V-U-E, And the whole point is to bring together my two great loves, which is literature and music. And so we have four readers and a musician perform. It's really fun. We did one in June. It was uh, fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to July. So if you're in town, you want to do something fun, it's on a Sunday, you have nowhere else to be, Come on by, have a drink with me, and enjoy. Thanks all for listening. Happy summer. Take care. And flowers. Mm-hmm.